What do you do when you don't understand what the Lord is doing? One of the things that makes it challenging sometimes as we are walking with the Lord, following the Lord, or maybe you're just considering whether you want to follow the Lord or what that will mean, is it's very easy for us to do what makes sense to us. If we can understand it, if we know, if we can see the reasons behind what's going on, then it's much easier for us to cooperate and to go along with it. But when we don't understand what's going on, when we can't make sense of what it seems like the Lord is doing, when we can't connect the dots and figure out what is going on, that makes it very difficult for us to trust and to obey. Now, this is not a new situation. This is something that people of faith have dealt with for a long time. In fact, one of the first verses that I was encouraged to memorize is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. This is what it says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. See, the most natural thing is for us to lean on our own understanding. If we can figure it out, if we can understand it, then we go with it. But what this verse is pointing out is that sometimes trusting the Lord means entrusting his, to his sovereignty and letting him figure things out. And sometimes it's not going to make sense to us. So it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. And then goes on to say, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Another translation says, direct your paths so all of us, if, if, we, if we really believe that there is a loving heavenly father out there who created us, who has our best interests at heart, who uh, sovereignly directs all that is going on, we want to believe that, then we want him to make our paths straight. We want him to direct our paths. But in order for that to happen, we have to acknowledge him. We have to not lean on our own understanding and we have to trust him. In fact, uh, one of the reasons I highlighted acknowledge is that one time I did a little study. It's like, what, what does it mean to worship? What does it mean to worship God? And what I came to find out was there's not just one word in the Bible that always gets translated worship. In fact, it's a, a whole cluster of different words that sometimes get translated as worship. But the, the common thread in all of those was that worship is to acknowledge God in every aspect of your lives. It's to recognize him for who he is and to honor him at, uh, for who he is. It's acknowledging him. And so when we say we worship him, what we're saying is we're, we're, we're going to trust him. We're going to trust that he is who he says he is, that he'll do what he says he'll do. We're not going to lean on our understanding. It means sometimes we're not going to be able to figure it out, but our track record, his track record, our track record with him shows that he's trustworthy. So we're going to acknowledge him. We're going to honor him. We're going to follow him in every aspect of our lives. And that's when he directs our paths, makes our paths straight, leads us, guides us, directs us. Now, I bring that up because as we've been studying through the book of Mark, that has been a major theme that Jesus is the king, but he secures his kingship and 
inaugurates the kingdom of God in ways that are not at all expected. One of the big ideas behind this whole series is that Jesus is the king who secures victory through the cross. And that's not how the people of his day expected it. And it's not the way that we often expect things to happen in our world as well. It's through humility and suffering and service that he is exalted as king. We've seen this theme develop throughout the book of Mark. And you've seen this graphic before, if you've been watching along, that Mark can be split into basically two major sections. The first one, who is Jesus? Well, he's the king, the Messiah, the promised uh, anointed one of God. But how does he inaugurate that kingdom? He does it through the cross, through suffering, through service. So, Today, as we think about those things that we don't understand, following God when it's hard for us to figure out what he's doing, the key idea is that God is faithful. So today we are talking about his faithfulness. And what we're saying is that God is always at work. He's always accomplishing his purposes. He's always doing what he has in mind to do. It's just not always the way that we expect. So we trust in the Lord with all our heart and we don't lean on our own understanding. We see this throughout the book of Mark. It's a constant theme that God is at work establishing his kingdom, using Jesus as his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ, in order to bring about the kingdom of God. But he's always disappointing people's expectations and going about it in a way that is unexpected. God is always at work. It's just not always the way that we expect. And the challenge that is implicit throughout the entire book of Mark is to welcome Jesus as God's representative, as God in the flesh, as the Messiah, but without putting qualifications that it has to look like what I expect or fit my preconceived notions, to welcome Jesus and allow him to be sovereign and to to accomplish things according to his way of doing things. And so the challenge that I'm going to give you at the end of this is to ask, what does it look like to welcome Jesus into your life, to acknowledge him in all of your ways, to let God be God, and for us to trust him because he's faithful and not lean on our own understanding. Now, there are two major passages that we'll look at. Now, I've been in this series, this uh, giving you kind of an overview of the Gospel of Mark. We've talked about that first section, who Jesus is, and now we are moving into that second section, beginning at chapter 11, where Jesus is inaugurating his kingdom. So we're gonna be looking at Mark chapter 11, verses one to 11, And that references, and we'll pull in Psalm 118. So those are the two major passages that we're looking at today. I'm going to go ahead and read to you from Mark chapter 11. Again, this is the beginning of the second major section of the book of Mark. And you might remember that it was split up uh, topically by who Jesus is and then how he accomplishes his work. And it was also split up geographically as well in a parallel way. The first part of the book happens primarily in Galilee. And then there's a transitionary part where he's on the way to Jerusalem. And then the second part, 
second half begins in and takes place in Jerusalem. So this is the first part when he arrives at Jerusalem and it is what we traditionally refer to as Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. This is Mark chapter 11 verses 1 to 11. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and we'll return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, What are you doing untying that colt? Then they said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and all the people around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest heaven. So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the twelve disciples. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for the reminder that you are always at work and that even when we can't understand it or it doesn't make sense or you do things in ways that we don't expect or can't comprehend, that we can still trust you, that you are faithful and good. And I pray that as we look at this scripture today, that you will speak to every heart, that every person who is watching and listening will hear exactly the word that they need to hear directly from you. We thank you for this. We thank you that you are living alive and active in our world, in our lives, in our church. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to know how we can best welcome your activity into our lives, to acknowledge you in all our ways so that you might direct our paths. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. All right, so let's look at it together. Again, this is the first part of the next section where Jesus is inaugurating his kingdom and it begins as they enter into Jerusalem. They have been traveling down from the north in Galilee down to the southern part, Judea, where Jerusalem is. Jesus and his disciples approach Jerusalem and they came to these two towns that are just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Uh, it makes me think of, you know, just how ex- excite- exciting it would have been because they weren't riding, they weren't flying, they were walking a long way on a hard and dusty trail. They had been in Jer- Jericho, which is only about 12, 14 miles away from Jerusalem, but it's a difficult walk 
in the Judean wilderness. It's going from Jericho, which is a, a, a city that is 800 feet below sea level, to Jerusalem, which I think is about 3,200 feet above sea level. This is a quite a climb. And so they're climbing, climbing, climbing. And finally, they get to the Mount of Olives and opening up before them is Jerusalem. They would have been able to see the temple there on the Temple Mount, and it would just been a very exciting time. They're approaching at the time and to celebrate Passover. So many pilgrims would have been coming there, and they get to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus sends two of them on ahead, and he's going to prepare for his entry into Jerusalem. Early on in this series, I mentioned that this would be a good read to go along with it. It's Timothy Keller's King's Cross. That was what the hardback was called. I think it's now published in paperback under Jesus the King. So if you search for any of those, you will find that. Again, good read to go along with this series, if you like. Here's what he says about the entry into Jerusalem, and in particular, his riding a donkey. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, people laid down their cloaks on the road in front of him and hailed him as a king coming in the name of the house of David. This type of parade was culturally appropriate in that era. A king would ride into town publicly to be hailed by cheering crowds. But Jesus deliberately departed from the script. Again, it's not always the way that we expect. And did something very different. He didn't ride in on a powerful war horse the way a king would. He was mounted on a palas, that is, a colt or a small donkey. Here was Jesus Christ, the king of authoritative, miraculous power, riding into town on a steed fit for a child or a hobbit. In this way, Jesus let it be known that he was the one prophesied in Zechariah, the great Messiah to come. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that's Zechariah 9, 9. So again, even in the entry into Jerusalem, you can see that Jesus is doing what he intends to do. He is orchestrating his entry into Jerusalem as the king, but he does it in a way that the people wouldn't expect and at the same time fulfills the prophecies. Uh, so here's what the way it's described. They go into Jerusalem. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. What they're doing is very clearly welcoming a king into his capital. And others spread leafy branches as they, that they had cut in the fields. Now we call this Palm Sunday because in another of the gospels, we know that they were waving palm fronds as well. Uh, a couple of hundred years before, uh, in the intertestamental period, there was a rebellion and a king who came in and established a dynasty. And it's recorded that they welcomed him with ivy, which was used in the worship of gods in the Roman world, uh, with palm branches, which kind of were like the flags of their era. 
because you know they didn't have flags. You couldn't go to a store and pick up a flag, but there were so many palm trees in that area that the palm tree became kind of representative of the nation. So in order to have a patriotic display, they would wave their palm fronds. And also they waved other branches as well, which was a part of the celebration of certain feasts. So you have all of these themes coming together to basically tell us that Jesus is entering into his capital as the king, but he does it in a way that is unexpected. So Jesus was in the center of the procession and the people were all around him. People all around him were shouting. This is what they were shouting. Praise God. Now that's a translation in the New Living Translation of Hosanna, which literally means God save or God save us. And it became a shout of exaltation, of uh, praise. And so that's why it's translated this way. And they're saying also, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, both of these, Hosanna and the blessing, are quoting from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a part of a group of psalms that were read at Passover and other celebrations. And they are, uh, so that would have been appropriate. It's, they're about to celebrate Passover. Jesus is coming in. And this quote shows up in all four gospels, as well as Jesus teaching when he says, that in Matthew 23, 27, that uh, judgment is coming on the people and they're not going to see him again until they are quoting this, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So all that to say, they know that Jesus is entering as a king. They are welcoming him as a king. They're recognizing that God is at work, but once again, Jesus is going to do it in such a way that surprises them and is not according to their expectations. So it goes on, more quotes, blessings in the, on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David, clearly putting him in the, in the royal line of David. Praise God in the highest heaven. Again, all of this referring back to Psalm 118, the promises that God is going to be at work and that he's going to reestablish his kingdom and save his people again, reinforcing that God is always at work. But again, Jesus is riding into the city, not on a war horse, but on a humble colt. And so it's just not always the way that we expect. So let's look at a little bit of the context of Psalm 119, which they were quoting it actually is coming from the second, the first half of verse 26, where it says, bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So direct quote right from Psalm 118, which again would have been quoted around that time of the year for them in that celebration. Let's look at how this Psalm starts. It starts with verse one like this, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. And then the next several verses are kind of a responsive reading where first the people of Israel, then the priests 
and then the other God-fearing people are all invited to echo his faithful love endures forever. So this is a major theme throughout this psalm that God is at work. He's going to be faithful. It's just not always going to be the way that you expect. Here's my son, Jonathan, who's been recently studying this word that is translated faithful love to explain it to us. Exodus 34, 6 is the first time God describes his own character in the entire Bible. And it goes like this. He, Yahweh proclaims, Yahweh, Yahweh, a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness, keeping unfailing love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So, even within this passage, the word unfailing love is repeated twice, unlike all the other characteristics in the same passage. And it's the Hebrew word chesed, and some Bibles has translated loving kindness, uh, loyal love, sometimes just simply love. And how I've defined it before is it's a covenantal love that says, no matter what, I'm going to show you unmerited favor and love to you. In the New Testament, this word is converted uh, because the New Testament is in Greek, Old Testament is in Hebrew. It's the word charis, which means grace. And even Jesus is filled with this. It says that he was filled with grace and truth, like God is filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. And it's a love that God has towards his people and to whoever he has committed himself to that says, I'm going to follow through, I'm going to take care of your needs, and I'm going to fulfill you. No matter what, if you open yourself up to me, it's uh, and the word I used earlier, covenantal, is when I make a vow. Uh, it's a covenant. Um, and that's a fancy word, again, just for vow. It's I, I swear myself to this thing. And so that's why the biblical authors in the Old Testament are just fascinated that God would have unfailing love towards Israel, who is known for rebelling over and over again, and why Christians in the New Testament with Jesus are just fascinated with how Jesus would die on the cross for them and show them a love that they don't deserve. And as time has progressed, we realize that these two are the same thing and that God in his triune nature shares covenant love and faithfulness to his people over and over again, no matter what we do or say, he is there and he is showing love that is unmerited, that is full, and that is an action and not merely a concept. And that is chesed. So after establishing the theme that this verse, that this passage, this psalm is all about God's faithfulness, it goes on to recount the distress, the difficulty, the challenges that the people of God have faced, the Psalmist says in verse five, in my distress, I prayed to the Lord. And all throughout the psalm, it just outlines the nations are arrayed against us. People were out to get us. People were trying to kill me. All the different challenges and frustrations and difficulties that this person is facing, that the psalmist is facing. And it's interesting that even in the midst of that, the theme, the, the bookends of this psalm are all about God's faithfulness and his goodness 
and the psalmist is going to end up praising God and giving thanks. I think that's a good thing for us to remember because there are going to be times where we don't understand what God is doing. We can't connect the dots. We can't trace his hand. We just don't understand. We sometimes feel like if we were doing the right things and saying the right things, then the right things, good things should be happening. And that's just not always the case. So here we have a psalm that's all about this. In my distress, in my difficulty, I'm crying out to the Lord. But in the midst of that, God is faithful. And the Lord answered me and set me free. And that's what this psalm is about. It's the testimony that even in difficulty, even with all this opposition, that God is faithful. He comes through in the end. He rescues, he saves, and he sets us free. It's just not always the way that we expect. So halfway through this psalm, thereabouts, uh, there's the transition because this would have been used liturgically. It would have been used in worship. And so the person is coming uh, as if they're coming to Jerusalem and uh, for worship at the temple. They're recounting all the distresses and difficulties that they have faced, but now they're going to go into the temple to give thanks to God for the deliverance that he has worked. So in verse 19, it says, open for me the gates where the righteous enter and I will go in and thank the Lord. Open the gates. Let me in. Let me into the temple precincts. I want to give thanks to the Lord. Now, remember, this is the psalm that the people were quoting as they welcomed Jesus into the city. Let's flip back to Mark chapter 11. In verse 11, it says, So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. See the parallel there? The psalm is about a person who's been in difficulty and distress, who is now entering into the temple precincts to give thanks to God. He's welcomed with blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then hundreds of years later, the people are shouting this very thing, quoting this very psalm as Jesus comes to Jerusalem and goes into the temple. It's very clear that Jesus recognizes and the people recognize that God is at work in what is going on here, but they're getting ready to be surprised about how he goes about it because God is always at work, just not always the way we expect. Another parallel. Remember, the book of Mark is split into two major sections. The first one is introduced with the story of John the Baptist. And in explaining John the Baptist, who he is and what he's doing, Mark quotes Malachi chapter 3 before giving a quote from Isaiah. He says, look, this is Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, look, I'm sending my messenger on ahead to clear the way for me. And that's the way that Mark helped us to understand what John the Baptist's ministry was. He went to prepare the way, to clear the way, to clear the decks so that Jesus could show up on the scene. And that's how the first half of the book is introduced. Now, the second half of this verse will sound a little bit familiar to the second half of Mark. The very next phrase, suddenly out of the blue, the leader you've been looking for will enter his temple. So the beginning of the book starts out with this quote from this verse saying, here's John the Baptist. He's clearing the decks for Jesus. 
Jesus is coming on the scene as the King Messiah that has been promised. Now, the second half of the book, as they move into Jerusalem, has this very theme. The leader that you've been looking for, out of the blue, he shows up and he enters his temple. And notice, this is perhaps one of the most uh, shocking things in this whole verse and be easy to miss. It says, his temple. Now, whose temple is this? It's, it's God's temple. It's the temple of the Lord. That's how the people would have understood it. So here you have this figure who is showing up in Jerusalem, going into the temple, but it's his temple. Whose temple is it? It's the Lord's temple. And here this, this leader that we've been looking for enters his temple, clearly indicating that Jesus is more than just a man, more than just a the anointed one. He is God in the flesh. He is the, the Lord of the temple entering into his temple. And then flip back again to Mark chapter 11, verse 11, and looking around carefully at everything. So Jesus, he orchestrates it so that he enters in as a conquering king, but he does it in a way that's unexpected. He's riding on a, humbly on a donkey. He goes in, he's entering into his temple, uh, the temple that is dedicated to the worship of the Lord. And I just want you to think about, in light of this theme, what do you expect to happen here? What would you expect Jesus to do? I would think, he's, he's, since he's orchestrating this, since he's working this out, since this is the fulfillment of his plan and the people's hopes, that what would he do? He would maybe get up in, in front of the temple and make this great speech or rally the people to his cause. Uh, the people might have expected him to say, okay, this is the time. Take up your swords and let's kick the Romans out. Who knows what they would have expected? But Jesus it's almost funny to me. He does almost exactly the opposite of that. And it again points out that even when God is at work, it is often not in the way that we expect. What's the second half of this verse? After looking around carefully at everything, he left. <laughs> what? He, he's, he goes in, he's got the crowds around him. They're shouting uh, his praises and he looks around carefully, he examines the temple precincts, and then he left. Because it was late in the afternoon, you know, it's, it's getting kind of late, you know, maybe not, today's not the day to do the kingship. No, I mean, this was his purpose. He was doing all of this on purpose. I like the way one commentator put it, uh, the ending of this passage is quiet, but it's the quiet before the storm. It's the quiet before the storm. Uh, this is the beginning of Holy Week. In less than a week, he would, go, he would be betrayed. He would go to the cross. He would suffer a tortuous death and be dead and buried and then raised again. The, it would have been impossible for the people even though it was explained to them, even though Jesus was trying to tell the disciples, this is again the constant theme of Mark, he's explaining what he's about, that he's going to do things that they expect, but in a way that they just don't foresee, but they still don't get it. They still don't get it. He enters in as the conquering king, but then he goes out again. He puts, presses pause on the whole story. 
And the challenge, I would think, part of the challenge for the disciples, certainly a challenge for the larger crowds, and even a challenge to us today, is to allow Jesus to be Jesus, to be sovereign, to do things his way, to do things in ways that sometimes we don't understand or are counterintuitive or countercultural, and to just be okay with that. To go back to that original verse that I started this message with, to trust the Lord with all our heart. We have the benefit of, of hindsight. We can look back and say Jesus was who he said he was. He did everything that he said he would do. And if somebody can predict and carry through with their own death and resurrection, then I'm probably going to go with what that guy said. Uh, you know, that's just amazing and astounding and has never been duplicated. He is alive. He came back to life. He is resurrected and now reigns and rules from heaven. So in light of that, we can trust him. We can trust him, but we have to entrust the way he accomplishes his will according to the way that he wants to do it. That's a big part of the challenge. And so that's why I'm going to challenge you this week to ask, what does it look like to welcome Jesus into your life? The people were welcoming Jesus as the king into his capital. But in order for them to still be following him a week later, they were going to have to submit some of their preconceived notions and their way that they wanted to see things happen to Jesus and allow God to be God, allow Jesus to be Jesus, and accomplish things in his own way. Let's flip back to Psalm 118 because it picks up on the same exact theme. Towards the conclusion, in verse 22, It says, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. One way to maybe paraphrase this or put it would be, you know, when you're building a building, you have a certain idea of what would be the perfect uh, the perfect stone, the perfect uh, piece to fit in that building. And he's saying you know, the stone that the builders rejected, they're like, eh, that's, that's not the way we're going to do it. That's not what we're going to use. That's not what we're going to build. Has actually become the cornerstone, the most important, the key piece of the whole structure. And that's what's happening here. This verse is picked up multiple times in the New Testament as uh, indic- indicative of Jesus and what he has done. Uh, the stone the builders rejected, the people rejected his way of going about it. They wanted a conquering king, not a suffering servant. And so they rejected him. But God, but God made him the cornerstone. It goes on to say in verse 23, this is the Lord's doing and it's wonderful for us to see. The, the way that God brought about the kingdom of God through his son, Jesus Christ, not with a war horse and a sword, but with a humble colt and a cross. That's how he accomplished his purpose. And the psalmist foresees, uh, you know, who knows exactly what he had in mind when he was writing it, but it foreshadows what Jesus would do. And the Christian community from early on picked up on this stone that the builders rejected, becoming the cornerstone, and said with the psalmist, this is the Lord's doing. We see God at work in this, and it's wonderful to see. And then verse 24, this, all of this, this day, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And that verse, which 
uh, I'm familiar with from the past has so much more meaning to me now because it's saying, look, it's not just any day, but this day, the day that God does the reversal, the day that the rejected stone becomes the cornerstone, the day that God accomplishes his purposes, but in ways we could not foresee and would not have expected, this is the day the Lord has made and we're going to rejoice and be glad in it. And so the psalm ends with verse 29 with the exact same words, a duplicate of the very first verse of the psalm. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. See, that's one of the reasons why we can entrust ourselves to him even when we don't understand what he's doing, is that we can trust that he is faithful that his faithful love is going to accomplish his purposes and work for our good. And there will be a day where we say, ah, this, this is good. This is, this is a God thing. This is a day the Lord has made. We're going to rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul picks up on this theme of the day. It says, for God says, at just the right time I heard you, on the day of salvation I helped you. And then he goes on to say, indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Part of following the Lord means that we're going to say to him, I trust you. I'm going to surrender my life to you. I'm going to commit my life to you. I'm going to turn my life over to you. And implicit in that commitment is a recognition that God is God and he's going to get to call the shots and he's going to accomplish his purposes, but he's going to accomplish it in the way that he wants to and that he deems best. It's not always going to make sense to us. We're not always going to be able to foresee it, but we can entrust ourselves to him. And so today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to turn your life over to him, to say, I'm not going to make my understanding of things, my God. I'm going to let you be God. And even if I don't understand it, I will entrust myself to you. And so I encourage you, if you've never crossed the line of faith, I'm not talking about showing up for church. I'm not talking about watching church online. I'm not talking about giving money. I'm not talking about trying to be a good person. Has there ever been a time where you have turned your life over to him, entrusted yourself fully, said, I'm going to acknowledge you in all of my ways. If not, then today is the day of salvation. Commit your life to Jesus. Say yes. Say yes to what he did on the cross for you, that he purchased with his blood your forgiveness. Say yes to his lordship, to allow him to be God, to entrust yourself to him so that he gets to call the shots. He's the boss. He's the Lord. And when you do that, then you are adopted into his family you become a citizen in his kingdom and his faithful love covers you and he's going to be at work in your life and you can trust him. And even when you can't understand it or figure it out, he is going to be at work for you. The bottom line, God is always at work. He is drawing you. He is saving people. He is rescuing people. He's accomplishing his purposes. But we just have to recognize that it's just not always the way that we expect. Jesus entering into Jerusalem was God at work. 
but he did it in a way that we don't expect. And day by day, we as his followers can trust him. We know that he's at work, but we have to surrender to him, his way of going about it. And so I'll ask you to ask, what does it look like to welcome Jesus into your life? Not with preconceived notions, if you'll do this, or if you do it my way, or as long as I can understand it, then I will follow you. As long as it makes sense to me, then I'll do what you say. No, what does it mean to truly welcome Jesus as the King, as the Sovereign, as the Lord, to turn your life over to Him? What does it mean to welcome Him in that way? And then do that. What does it mean to acknowledge Him in all of your ways, in your finances, in your relationships, in your plans? You fill in the blank. Then do that. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, because you are faithful and good, and we can entrust ourselves to you with complete confidence that you are going to be at work according to your faithfulness and your goodness. Lord, sometimes we are tempted to make an idol of our own understanding, to say, oh, we'll do what God says as long as I understand it. We'll do what you say, Lord, as long as I can figure it out, as long as it makes sense to me. Lord, help us to trust you, to acknowledge you in all our ways, to lean not on our own understanding because we believe that you're at work and that you know best. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to every heart, that they would, every person listening and watching would know exactly how this applies to them. And then I pray, Lord, that you would give them the gift of courage and faith to act on that knowledge, to entrust themselves to you, to do things your way, to surrender control to you. And I pray, Lord, that as a result, there'll be many stories to tell, many good things to celebrate, and that we will see many, many more people welcoming you, saying yes to you, and then there will be greater celebration, greater goodness, greater evidence of your work in our lives as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.